And now today, we're going to talk about a very important problem in counseling. I suppose every one of you struggles with the same problem. In a sense, it's what the introduction was saying this morning uh, in a very unusual way. <clears throat> that is this problem of getting from point A to point B and then on from point B to point C and then from point C to point D and so on so that we make real progress in our Christian growth. We all struggle with that problem. And our counselees struggle with that problem. And the struggle often takes this form. It looks like our counselee after three sessions has really begun to strike out for Jesus Christ and get something achieved at last. He's broken loose from the problem that he came seeking help for. And now he seems to be up on the mountaintop breathing the fresh air of God's goodness. Well, two sessions later, he's mucking around at the bottom of the mountain, right back where he was before. Down in the bogs and down in the smog and down in the doldrums. And so he has to repent, get his life squared off with God and with his neighbors, up again on top of the mountain, thinking perhaps this time he's made some real progress and gotten where he needs to go so that he can look on to another mountain and get on to point C, when only a week later he's mucking around in that stuff at the bottom of the mountain again. And so it is, up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, never getting anywhere. The same old kiss and make up syndrome with God. That's a problem. You've struggled with in your own Christian life, I'm sure. And that your counselee is going to struggle with. What do we do? either ourselves or as we help our counselee to make some real progress and to see some genuine growth. How do we get past point A to point B and then past point B to point C and see some real movement at last? See some real change that sticks I think this is one of the most important issues that we must deal with. I'm going to read to you a passage from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. It begins, the passage I've selected begins at verse 22. Actually, the whole message of Ephesians is a unit. You can't quite separate matters as readily and as easily as I will have to this morning. Indeed, 
When I was at Westminster Seminary teaching full-time, the systematics department had the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we in the practical department had the last three chapters of Ephesians. But uh, every once in a while, I sneaked back into the first three chapters to lay a foundation for what Paul insists a person must do as a result of those great truths of God redemption that are presented in the first three chapters. And of course that hinge, that therefore, or however it's translated in your your version in verse in chapter four, uh, does hinge the two sections together, and everything that's in these last three very practical chapters does grow out of the tremendous teaching of the first three chapters. And I wish we had time to interlace and interrelate those two great sections, the doctrinal and more practical sections, to show how theology and doctrine leads to life and how life can only grow out of the right kind of teaching and thinking about God and about the world and about ourselves. But I can only say that this morning and urge you to go back and to make that kind of a study on your own. Don't just divide Ephesians into two chunks as though they were separated from one another. See that the latter part grows out of the former part and that the former part is worthless if it doesn't lead to the latter part. This is a unit and the two hold together and life and doctrine may never be separated. As Paul puts it in verse 1, we must walk in a way that is appropriate to the calling to which you were called. In other words, that whole calling of people in Christ that he's been talking about in the first three chapters then has implications for a person's walk. And the word walk is the dominant word throughout the last three chapters of Ephesians. That section of Ephesians deals with the believer's walk. But if you look at that section very carefully, you'll notice that it's not simply a solitary walk that is in view. The walk of an individual before God, that's there, of course. But it's more than that. It's the walk of one believer with other believers before God. It's how we have to get along with others. It's how we walk with our family members how we walk with our wives or our husbands, how we walk with our children or our parents, and then how we walk with other believers in general, how we walk with those that we walk with in business. And so that word walk runs all the way through. You see it in verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and describes their meaningless, fruitless walk. 5.2, walk in love. 5.8, walk as children of light. 5.15, be careful how you walk. The Christian's walk is described. But a walk means progress. A walk means growth. A walk means movement. It does not say the Christian stand. It does not say the Christian's stance, even. It says the Christian's walk. And we're concerned about a way of life a way that people go, a pattern of living. 
and growth in that pattern, movement. And then, as we turn to this fourth chapter, we read many things about that walk with others and how the whole body fits together and works together and love is a very important part of it all and how God sent and gifted the church with apostles and prophets and shepherds, evangelists and (coughs) shepherds and teachers, shepherd teachers and so on in order that all the the members of the body might minister according to the gifts that he gave to each individually. Then he comes to the 17th verse and says, the believer can no longer walk as he did when he was a Gentile. All that meaningless stuff has to go. And a whole new life has to come. A whole new manner of living. That's the problem that I've introduced to you this morning. And we see it here in verse 22 as Paul begins to deal with the problem. You were taught regarding your, and then various translations occur. Former manner of life, says the New American Standard Version, but even more closely to the original, let me read it this way. You were taught regarding your previous habit patterns. I don't think we have made enough of habit and the problems of habit in theology. I think it's time that we began to get serious about this altogether important issue, theologically speaking. The Bible says a great deal more about habit than most Christian people think. And habit is a very, very important part of our everyday lives. Think what it would be like if habit did not exist. If you had no habits, could not develop habits, had to operate day after day without anything becoming automatic, comfortable, and skillful. If you had to learn everything all over again, every day. Let's say I took a wand and waved it over this congregation here today. Like that. All your habits would disappear tonight while you sleep. And tomorrow morning you'd awaken to a new day habit-free. Totally habit-free. Now think about what that would be like. You'd wake up in the morning and there you'd lie on the bed with your eyes closed and you'd have to think consciously. Now what do I do next? And you'd have to philosophize over that and you'd have to make some very deliberate, conscious decisions Well, I guess if I'm going to do anything else, I'll have to open my eyes. Shall I open both at once, one at a time, and if so, which one first? You'd have to think about it. You couldn't just do it, you'd have to think about it. After you got past that tough one, you'd have to decide what you're going to do next, and so I guess you'd say, well, I guess if I'm going to get anything else accomplished, I'd better get out of this bed. But how do I do it? Well, I have to throw a leg over, but which leg, which side? Two at once, one at a time, which way? 
You'd have to think consciously about that. And I'm not going to go through the whole day because that would finish our message, uh, plus about six others for the day. But think about the impossibilities of really getting anywhere. Just think about learning again for the first time how to unscrew the top on a toothpaste tube, like you did when you were a kid. Consciously figuring how to hold it and turn it and the rest of it. How to squeeze it out and get it on the brush instead of all up your arm. Suppose you shaved. Why, I can't imagine. But suppose you shaved. <clears throat> there you'd be, figuring out how to stir up all this suds, and uh, then you would take it and you would begin to, to brush, but you realize that you don't have any habit patterns and you don't know that you can't turn your face toward it while brushing and so you have to think about all those problems. You'd probably nick yourself 15 times with a razor, probably look horrible, bloody, have to figure out what to do about that and how to do it. You wouldn't get to breakfast at midnight. <laughs> habit is a very dominant part of your life. And the Word of God does not ignore that very dominant, important part of your life. Think of how many things, complex things, you do by habit. Remember when you first learned how to drive an automobile? How hard it was? How difficult it was? You sat there, the wheel seemed this big. Here was a dashboard full of stuff, it looked like that. Right across there, and you had to look at all these dials and gadgets and the needles and so on. Here were all these pedals on the floor and sh gears to shift and this wheel, and you had to coordinate all those things together, your eyes and your feet and your hands and your nose and your ear. Of course your nose. Who laughed at that? In case you have a gasoline leak. leak. <laughs> You've got to coordinate all of these things together. That's not easy. You've got to watch out for automobiles and stripes and signs and presbyter I mean pedestrians. <laughs> all these things. You better watch out for the Presbyterians. <laughs> And uh, you thought, I'll never learn to drive. But you did. And now what happens on a moonless night? At midnight, you slip into a car, the person with you slips into his seat. Without any light at all, you take a car, a, a, a key, and deftly slide it right into a narrow slot without even missing that slide in total darkness. Switch on the key, you shift gears back out into the road, drive down the street, never giving a conscious thought to any one of those complex actions. The whole time you've been discussing some abstruse point of Calvinism with the friend next to you. <clears throat> Listen, habit forms a tremendous part of our everyday lives. We can't ignore it. And it's habit that we're dealing with when we run into this kiss-and-make-up syndrome. That's why that fellow's having problems and he's down mucking around again at the bottom of the mountain. That's why you're having difficulty to get on to point B or C or D. 
That's why progress is impeded. That's why difficulties without number continue to flood in and you wonder why and whether you're the only person who's having this struggle. That's a great deal of what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. This problem of habit is something we have to recognize, and Paul did right here in verse 23. You were taught, he says, regarding your previous habit patterns, this former way of life, this former way of living, this walk that an unbeliever has, the way that he moves from point C to point D to point E in sin. You were taught about how you used to yield your members to sin, leading to greater sin. Progress in the unbelieving life, too. Now you need to be taught about how you can yield the members of your body to righteousness, leading to further righteousness. How there can be a new pattern of life. How there can be new pre- new habit patterns by which you daily can learn skillfully and comfortably to live for Jesus Christ, just as you once yielded your members to unrighteousness. What's he going to teach us? Well, notice, first of all, that he taught concerning this matter. And if you don't teach your counselees concerning this matter, you're going to find them right back where they were in misery, bruised and battered and torn. And what he teaches them is, you must put off the old man or the old person that you were, we might say. Man there is used in the generic sense. The old person, the old man that you were. It's not an old nature. It doesn't say old nature, new nature. That's not biblical language. Fusus isn't used. It's man, anthropos. Put off the old man that you were, who is corrupted by deceitful desires, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new person that you are, the new man who is created in God's likeness with true righteousness and holiness. Now notice, we already are, according to Colossians 3, and according to this verse, new persons in Christ. The old person has been put off in Christ. The new person already has been put on in Christ. If you turn to the parallel passage, don't do it now, in Colossians 3, you will see that he has said just exactly that in clear terms, but then he goes on to say in Colossians 3, be what you are. Put on the new man that you already are. Put off the old person that you already have put off. What does he mean? He means that in Christ, before God, we are reckoned to be totally new. All the old things are gone. All the new things have come. And that's how God sees us through Christ. Brand new, fresh, kinos creatures. But, what about the way we are in ourselves? That's how we are in Christ. That's our standing. What about our state? What about the way we are right now, here? Well, we're something less than fresh, freshly new creatures. We still have much of the old, much of the old way of life, the old pattern of living. 
And so we may no longer walk that way, he warns us. And he urges us to put off those old ways and to put on some new ones. And the way that it happens is that we are renewed in the spirit of our mind. Now, this is not <clears throat> a compound of the word kainos here that means to be renewed in some fresh new making of ourselves. But the word renewed here is a compound of neos. And this anana'o, which is used here, means to become youthful, to become young, pliable, up-to-date, renewed in the sense of becoming, once again, by the grace of God, the kind of person Adam was, with a kind of attitude, spirit, in our minds that Adam had. Can you imagine how Adam must have been before the fall? Fresh from the hand of God, but also with this very youthful spirit or attitude in his mind in which he was anxious to learn and anxious to see and anxious to do whatever it was that God wanted for him to do. He looked at all of God's brand new creation and he knew that he had been given dominion over the whole of it. And he looked at everything with eyes that were like a young child's eyes just coming into this great world just with that youthful spirit that just reached out to everything to learn about it, to know about it, to properly rule it, to understand and control it in accordance with God's command to subdue it all to himself. There is no tiredness in the way that he viewed the world, no cynicism. All those things came in with sin. Man didn't have the kind of an attitude toward God's creation in which he could bypass a flower and not even see it. Or bypass some beautiful music such as was played here and not even listen twice to it. By the way, a violin, in my opinion, is either the most horrendous instrument there ever was if it's played poorly or the most beautiful one. And I think we had a marvelous example of the latter here this morning. Really appreciated that. But Adam, and a renewed spirit of the mind, takes it all in, soaks it all up, looks at the flower, smells the flower, touches the petals and feels the softness of the rose. Even looks at the little bug crawling on the leaf in amazement and wonder, watching it in all of its intricacy of movement, trying to understand and figure it out and know about it. The whole world is alive. He's youthful in his spirit of his mind, his attitude of mind toward all things. And we get very tired and worn from a world of sin in which everything goes to pot. It all begins to run down. Our bodies, every organization we belong to, 
the morning newspaper begins to give us the terrible headlines for the day, and the evening evening newspaper confirms the same. And on and on and on it goes, and we get very tired and very cynical and blind and deaf. We don't see and hear much anymore. But we need to have the spirit, the attitudes of our minds renewed to all the things of God. To all the truth of God, especially in his word, in his special revelation. A youthful spirit that anxiously looks for what God has to say, seizes upon it in our minds, and then transforms it into life by the spirit of God. Anxious to do what pleases God. Anxious to find out what it is that does please him, and then to enter into it. That's the kind of spirit that the Holy Spirit has given to us when he regenerates us and puts that within us so that we can put off the old ways and we can put off the new ways with youthful enthusiasm. That's the key. When you counsel, you need to bring a kind of enthusiasm to what's going on. Tired, worn, beat, bruised, battered people come into a counseling room. They've been buffeting their heads and their noses against it so long that they just are very, very cynical. They don't have much hope. And you need to bring that kind of enthusiasm to them to help regenerate within them a hope that will give them a youthful spirit of mind that the Spirit of God wants them to have so that they are enthusiastic about the change that's about to take place. That's what needs to be done. So, in an enthusiastic way, we must become what we are and get rid of what we already have gotten rid of in Christ. Put off and put on. Now, the key to this thing, the place where much of the failure lies, apart from the lack of enthusiasm, that often often characterizes counseling. The key to it all is to see that this change that sticks, this growth factor that we must have, is a two-factored process. It's not a single thing that we do, but two things that we do. It has two steps. And most of the failure that takes place in counseling along these lines, is a failure to recognize that it is a twofold process. I have seen people come to repentance and to faith, and they've gotten all the back things cleared up, all the problems dealt with, all the people uh, confessed to and forgiveness has been dealt with, and then they just think the problem is solved. It's not enough just to get all the sins forgiven before God and others confessed and dealt with and all the past put into the past. That's important. But they must now build the new relationship for the future or they will be back confessing the same old kind of stuff to the same old people again in the future. There has to be a positive side, a putting on of something new some new patterns of life, a new way of walking, a new group of habit patterns. You see, so many of our responses in life, our immediate responses, have become habitual. And we had better be sure, therefore, 
that the habitual responses we have when somebody says something nasty to us, when we discover that somebody has put one over on us, when we discover that somebody has cheated us, when we discover that somebody is doing something else wrong to us, we had better be sure that the responses that we have developed as Christians are no longer those old responses in which we shoot back a nasty word, in which we think an awful thought, in which we, in some way or other, say, I'll get even with him. But instead, we have to put on a whole new pattern of responses that are fitting to our new Christian faith. There's an old kid's joke. It's a very poor joke. And because it's so poor, I'm going to get you to participate with me in it. I don't want to feel guilty of uh, having been the one to tell this joke alone because I'm not going to tell it for its humor value. I'll ask the question, you give the answer. I'm going to use this as a paradigm, and so I need to have it done, but as I say, I don't want to do it alone. When is a door not a door? Answer? Thank you very much. When's a jar? Good. Nobody laughed. That's very, very good. He's going to have the ushers bounce him if he did. All right. Now, that is a paradigm I want you to remember. When is a blank, let's get rid of the word door, not a blank, answer, when it is a blank. When is a blank not a blank? When it's a blank. Now, what do you think we ought to fill in to the blanks? Well, you can fill in anything to the first blanks. Any problem you're dealing with, any old way that you need to put off. For example, when is a liar not a liar? Or when is a thief not a thief? Now, some people will answer, when is a liar not a liar? Answer, when he stops lying. When is a thief not a thief? Many people will answer, when he stops stealing. But those are wrong answers. Wrong, 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 wrong. And that's why people fail in living this Christian life and getting on from point A to point B to point C. Why, they're always mucking around beneath the same hill, never getting on to the next mountain peak. The answer is not. When is a liar not a liar when he stops lying? No. Is a liar not a liar when he stops lying? No, he's just a liar who isn't lying at that moment. He's still a liar. Is a thief not a thief when he stops stealing? No, he's just a thief between jobs. That's all. What will change it? Well, fortunately, Paul just happens to take up our illustration in verse 25. Isn't that amazing? He says, So then, putting off lying. Okay, that's you got to stop. That's right. But that's only half of the picture. That's only half of the process. That's only the negative or first step. You have to put off lying, certainly. But he doesn't stop there. So then, putting off lying, here comes the second half, the positive part, the new man, the new way of life, the new pattern that has to develop. 
Putting off lying, each one must speak truth with his neighbor. I won't read the rest of it because that's a whole sermon in itself that would get me off the track today. But you see, the answer then is, when is a liar not a liar? Answer! When he becomes a truth teller. When that is his way of life. That for him it is habitual when the pressure is on. When the difficulties come for him to tell the truth. When he's backed into a corner. And when everybody's after him. And everything says, all right, this is the moment. For him it is a moment of truth. And habitually, when he's under pressure, truth comes out rather than the lie. That doesn't come just by putting off lying. It's not the same thing to stop lying as it is to learn to tell the truth. You don't believe that? You ladies will all understand if the men don't. Suppose a woman comes into your congregation. And she's dressed from head to foot with a whole new outfit. That's all we can call it, an outfit. Because it is coordinated from top to bottom. Flamingo, let's say, with sequins of, uh, who knows, uh, let's say some kind of uh, uh, living jade colors. Well, you look at this outfit and you say, I have never seen anything in all my days as horrendous as that. You look at it, and in your mind you think, I can't look twice, I'll get sick. (laughs) And she comes over to you. And she says, what do you think of my new outfit? Now, it's one thing not to lie. It's another thing to tell the truth. Right? You see the difference, don't you? You say to her, isn't it nice weather we're having? You haven't lied, but you didn't tell the truth. She says, yes, it is. And uh, what do you think of my new outfit? Doesn't it go with the weather? (laughs) And you think, uh, not this weather, but the weather we had last week. But you don't say that. You say, uh, oh, it's so nice to have a new outfit, isn't it? You haven't lied, but you haven't told the truth either. You see how hard it is to tell the truth under even such a stupid circumstance as that. And it's quite a different thing than not lying. So you see, there are two separate items, two separate steps, two separate things. And the counselor must concern himself with both, not just helping the person to deal with the wrong thing and put it off, but he has to help him to develop the right ways as well. He can't dismiss him before the right patterns have been developed. And many counselees, as soon as the pain and the pressure is off, want to quit. And you have to encourage them to stay long enough to develop the new ways that God wants put on as part of their habitual response to life in place of the old ways that they are putting on. By the way, If that woman keeps pressuring you, she deserves the truth. When is a thief not a thief? 
Paul just happens to use our second illustration in verse 28. Notice the two parts again. The thief must stop stealing. There's the put off the negative. What has to go? And then it says instead. Here's the positive to put on. What has to come in? He must labor working with his own hands at honest work so that he may have something to share with those who have need. When is a thief not a thief? Answer. When he has become a hard worker who gives to those who are truly in need out of the the, the fruit of his labor. And not a moment before. You want rehabilitation of criminals? There's the way a criminal is rehabbed. Only when he has put on that new way of life in which he goes to work regularly every day and labors hard and then gives to those who are truly in need, not some kind of a handout program, but those who are truly in need out of the fruit of his work. A thief can tell me I'm no longer a thief. But if he doesn't demonstrate that, I won't believe him. You see, a person is still habituated, still programmed to respond in the wrong way when he only puts off, that is, in the sense of stopping. But you see, these two really work together. You only genuinely put off when you have shoved it out by something else becoming more dominant in its place, by putting on. So it's not even really a put-off when a person stops or quits for a while. It is necessary to not just break habits, as the world says, but it is essential to replace habits. And we don't do this in our own strength. We do this, first of all, because the Spirit of God convicts us through His Word of what is wrong. And we do this, secondly, because the Spirit of God renews our mind and makes it youthful so that we have a youthful attitude. We're willing to take on anything at any point in life. No matter how old our bodies may be, we don't say, like many old people do, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's not a youthful spirit of mind. An 80-year-old man can have the kind of spirit of mind that says, I can't wait to see what God has for me today in his word and in my life. And he he ought to. With that youthful spirit of mind, with enthusiasm and expectancy and wide open eyes and ears and heart, he enters into, plunges into, we might say, the new way. This is what we need to see in the lives of counselees if we want to see real change. And this is what we can see if we minister the word according to the scriptures. I want to conclude with 2 Timothy 3 in a passage we all know quite well, which ties all the things that I've been trying to say together, I think. Timothy getting the last letter from Paul. Paul's about ready to leave. No wonder Timothy was such a a timid person. We often chide Timothy for this when we preach about him, but remember, 
he was going to have to put on Paul's shoes. I think any one of us realizing that fact, that Paul was handing the torch down to us as he was to Timothy, would be hesitant too. So be a little more gentle on Timothy in the future when you realize that fact. And Paul is encouraging Timothy. And he's telling him in this chapter how awful times will get. But in those days when everything seems to be coming loose, all the values and morals and everything else are going down the drain, a day very much like our own, Paul says, there's one thing that can keep you steady and firm, and only one thing. And that's the Scriptures. He says in verse 14, you must continue in the things that you learned and are convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures that are able to make you wise about salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first purpose of the word of God, to lead men to faith in Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But then, for the believer, what is the second purpose of the scriptures? All scripture is breathed out by God. Inspired is a very poor translation and has done a lot of harm. The Greek word does not mean <gasps> inspire to take in, but it means <sighs> to expire, breathe out. Of course, we can't translate it expired because when you talk about a book expiring, the librarians have ruined us and the undertakers haven't helped us either. But the word is bigger than that. It is God breathed out. And so, translate it literally, all scripture is breathed out by God. What does that mean anyway? It means this. It means that if God were to stand in this pulpit today and you could hear him speak audibly, by breath that is, he wouldn't say anything more. He wouldn't say anything less. And he wouldn't say anything different from what he has said in this book. It would be identical with what he has said here. It's as much God's word, this book, as if he were speaking this word by breath. That's what he's saying. All scripture is breathed out by God. And, by God, and because it is, it is useful. Here's the second purpose. The purpose for believers. Useful for teaching. It tells us what God requires of us. For conviction. It shows us where we have failed to meet those requirements. For correction. It gets us out of the messes we get ourselves into, dusts us off and picks us up and heads us in the right direction again. And that's where most people stop with their use of the Bible and counseling and they fail their counselees. But there is a fourth thing that the Scriptures do in this process of change and transformation, change that sticks. They teach. They give us the standard. They convict. They show us our failure. They correct. They get us out of our messes. But the scriptures go on to a fourth purpose. They are useful for discipline, training in righteousness. If we continue, they will discipline us and train us into the new ways of life that we must put on. And finally... The scriptures are given in order to make the man of God, a phrase in the pastorals used for the minister, 
picked up out of the Old Testament and used by Paul in the pastorals to speak of the one who ministers officially in God's name in order to make the man from God adequate and to equip him fully for every good test. Adequate, equip him fully for every good test. In three ways, Paul says, all you need for a ministry of transforming people, of changing their lives, is this book. Ministered wisely in the power of the Spirit of God, you have all that you need right here.